Last week I was in Shreveport, Louisiana speaking to a group of about 250 men at a thing called Man Church. It's put on by a ministry out there called Men of Courage. And uh, the guy who runs it gave me this t-shirt, Men of Courage. He always gives me a t-shirt. I've been speaking out there for the last 12 years at this event. Every month, he gets anywhere from 250 up to 500 men at his location and has somebody come in and speak to give the gospel and teaching from the Bible and challenge men to live for Christ, to know Christ if they don't know Him. Now that one location is spread to seven locations and this man church incorporates every month about 3,000 men across the state of Louisiana. And I tell you that because 12 years ago when I met this guy, he was selling products on QVC. He came to an event I spoke at and was actually helping me set up for this event that I was speaking at. And we started talking. And he was feeling God moving him but he was struggling with some things in his life, some personal struggles, some other things. Didn't feel worthy to do ministry. Wasn't a, a speaker and was like, I, I just don't know what to do. But an opportunity had popped up at a local church there to be a men's ministry guy. And he goes, I, I don't really know if I can do that because I'm, just, I'm, I, I'm not a speaker. I don't know the word like I should. But after prayer and spending some time with him and some encouragement, he took that job, which God used as a little bit of a training ground for him. But at the same time that he took that, at that church is where he started what he calls the man church thing. as an idea just once a month to get guys together. Now, he did teach a Bible study once a week. And over the last 12 years, every year I would go out and I would just speak into his life. I gave him a Bible and really challenged him to start reading through that Bible and studying that Bible and teaching that Bible. And so for the last 12 years, with the exception of the two years of COVID, I've spoken out there. And I was speaking out there to these men this week. Now they have women of courage that have multiple um, events of called Women Church. Lori went to speak at Women Church. And so when I was out there, this time I was just seeing what God has done. This guy, God has used to buy two houses on the worst street in Shreveport. Like, it's known as K Street, which is where gangs hang out. They have drive-by shootings. But he and this ministry bought two houses and they've converted one house into a goodwill and they give away all kind of products i was blown away by it i go in there and it's point system and they encourage youth to come there and they've got about 80 to 90 young people between the ages of 8 and 18 that come once a week to what they call their block party and if they come they get points if they join and give them their phone number they get points. If they do a Bible study, they get points. And with those points, they can go in and buy health products. They can buy food. They can buy shoes. 
they get all these donations. And I'm sitting there just going, wow. Wow. See, all that stuff on QVC wasn't to put money in your bank. That stuff God was using you to prepare to do this stuff. And Man Church is a platform that brings in people that have poured in. This house story, he's telling me this story. And he goes, Doug, we, you know, we were, we were at this house and we were doing it. And then this house became available. This guy just calls me and says, I know y'all got this one. And so this other one is much bigger. It has a big garage for storage and everything. And he said, you could have it for $30,000. And it's right next to a plot of land where they grow garden stuff. They, get, they grow garden stuff. They sell pepper jelly. They sell uh, something called soul food seasoning. And, uh, and on the soul food seasoning, it's like that Zataran or whatever that, that Cajun stuff is. And on the, on the container itself, instead of ingredients, it talks about fatherless children and, and what they're most likely to do. So when you look, you think you're looking at ingredients, but it tells you if, if a child doesn't have a father, bloom, he's more likely to do this, 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 and then she goes through all that stuff. And it's got a, a scan code on there. If you want to know how to know Jesus, hit this thing and it takes you right to a gospel presentation. And so they're using this, and I'm just sitting there going, wow. Man, you had no idea 12 years ago. He starts crying. He just starts weeping at what God is doing because he remembers back when we had that first conversation. And so I see him, and I'm getting ready to teach this about Mark. And I was just thinking, you know, how God takes people. You don't have to be a Billy Graham You don't have to be a guy that stands out on a street corner with a Bible preaching. He is using this guy in Louisiana to reach so many young people, so many other men. And literally literally after I spoke, I had two young men that he's been discipling come up to me. They just talked to me for two hours. They Not two hours, an hour. It's probably an hour. They just peppered me with questions about the kingdom of God and about... The, the gospel that I was sharing because they said, why do people not preach like this? We don't hear this kind of preaching. And it wasn't me. It was what the message God wanted them to hear that night about the kingdom because people don't talk about the kingdom of God. They talk about the saviorhood of Jesus, but not the kingship of Jesus. And the gospel of Mark is the reason we're in the gospel of Mark now is because Mark is one of the only Gospels where it tells what Jesus said when it says, and He preached the Gospel in chapter 1, verse 8. And it says, He was saying the kingdom is here. Repent, believe, and follow. We don't hear that as part of Gospel presentations today. And so the following part, the repenting part, you don't even hear in a lot of places anymore. And so that's why we're in the Gospel of Mark. God used Peter to pass on through Mark the information we read in the Gospel of Mark. Nobody knows more about repentance than Peter. How many times did he stick his foot in his mouth with Jesus? Over and over and over. 
And so today is going to be a little different in the sense of we're, we're going to do kind of a, a broad brush look at the life of Mark. This guy that whose name is John Mark, you may or may not know about John Mark. But Mark's gospel is broadly recognized as the very first gospel that was written. And like the other gospel writers, he doesn't have his name in there. Why, why do you think no gospel writer said, hey, I'm writing this at the beginning? Like a lot of guys when they're writing letters will put their name from me. Why, why do you think they didn't want their names associated with it? They want the focus on Jesus, right? They don't want... It's not about them. It's not about them. And so... Um, his account of the life of Jesus is the shortest and the most action-packed of all the Gospels. In fact, when I would share the Gospel with people a lot of times, I would take them, if they've never read any Gospel, I would start them in Mark and I would say, listen, I want you to read a chapter a day. That, that way in a month you can read through Mark almost twice. And I want you to ask these two questions. What does it say about Jesus? And what does it say about me? And just ask those two questions as you read through each chapter. And so, Mark's focus is more on the story of Jesus' life rather than all the teachings. If you look in Matthew and you look in uh, Luke, you see some of Jesus' sermons. They're all drawn out. In fact, there's a lot of teaching in Matthew and in Luke. But not in Mark. There's only really two two what I would call teaching passages or, or sermon passages in Mark, chapter 4 and chapter 12. Chapter 4 is where he, get, he gets into the parables and in chapter 12 he gets into teaching. But the rest of it, it's literally just an unfolding of the life of Jesus, that Him moving from place to place. And, you know, Mark... Um, is really sharing from Peter's perspective. And this is, uh, the early church fathers kind of testified to this, that he's sharing from Peter's perspective to the Roman people because it was written in Rome to Romans as they were going through persecution to encourage them. And he makes this statement in verse 1 that Jesus is Messiah, He's the Son of God, and... This is good news. The gospel. The word there for good news or gospel is euangelion. And I've talked about that with you guys before and we'll get into that next week. But really, euangelion was a secular term. It was not a spiritual term to the Jewish people. It was a term that was only used when a new king was crowned emperor when a new emperor was born or when an emperor had a great military victory. Those were the only three times that term was used. And so Mark is making a clear statement that Jesus is the king. Now when you think about the Gospels, Matthew wrote primarily for who? For the Jewish people, right? He's writing from a Jewish perspective and he starts his Gospel with what? A genealogy. Why is that important? Because the Jews... The Messiah came where? From the tribe of Judah. He had to show, he had to show that genealogy because he had to prove that Jesus was in the Davidic line. 
Now Luke, when he wrote, he focused on Jesus mainly as what? The Son of Man. He focused on Jesus' humanity. And, he, and the fact that He was uh, the Son of Man. And he, he knew that His Greek listeners would, would really connect with the perfect baby. That's why He goes into such detail about His birth. And the perfect man. So He focused on that. Now John, when he wrote, he focuses on what? The eternal nature of, of Jesus. He's trying to prove what? That Jesus is God. He's deity and when, his, when he's writing. So the, each gospel kind of has its own perspective that it's trying to get across by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were written by men, but they all were addressing certain audiences and Mark's no different. He wrote to Gentiles in Rome. And his main theme is Jesus, the suffering servant. That's the main, the main theme of Mark is Jesus as a suffering servant. Now, when you, when you read through it, there's several clues in Mark that tell us he was writing to Romans or people that were Greek speakers. One of them is there's several Latin phrases in the book. One in verse or 21 of chapter 4, the term for basket there is a Latin phrase. Okay, In chapter 12, the, the, the tribute word is a Latin phrase. And in chapter 15, the word for scourge, that's a Latin phrase. He would not use that writing to Hebrew people. All right, as well as there's four or five different phrases in there that are spoken in Aramaic or written in Aramaic, and then Mark actually translates it for people. All right, well, he would not have to translate Aramaic for the Hebrew people, they would have known it. So, who's he translating for? He's translating for the Romans. Um, if you had to pick one verse in all of, of Mark that was kind of the theme verse, it would be Mark 10.45. And if you remember what was going on in Mark 10, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And in Mark 10.45, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. And he had talked to them about serving. And that's really the theme. Mark wrote with the Romans in mind because in the Roman culture, what was life about? Was it about serving or was it about getting served? It's about getting served. Do we have a tendency to be like the Romans in that regard? Is this an applicable book for us? A Gospel book for us to read? Absolutely. Mark wrote with them in mind. And just like us, what happens? <laughs> Most people don't even read today, do they? They listen. We want to be active. And so he wrote with that in mind with the Romans. And for a lot of people, Mark is kind of like the USA Today version of the Gospel. <laughs> Alright? I mean, it, it describes Jesus moving quickly from place to place meeting the needs of the people, healing people, authenticating who He is. And one of Mark's favorite words, if you've read through it any times, is what, David? Immediately. Immediately. Yeah. It's straight away. All right? it's like, it, it literally means, okay, He did this now. 41 times in this short book. 41 times. So, Mark's account 
is also focused on the kingdom of God. That's something we don't talk a lot about in our culture, in the church. And what I mean talking about in our culture, I'm talking about the church culture. We talk a lot about the saviorhood of Jesus, but not a lot about his kingship. We, we, we pay homage to him in, in, a, in a very cursory way, superficially, but, but really talking about the king. In the Hebrew culture, a king is ruling wherever his will is obeyed, not geographically. How would that be working out for us in our culture? Is Jesus ruling in a lot of places in our culture? No, I don't think so. So it's about the kingdom of God, but it's also about discipleship. We see him dealing with his disciples, struggling to get them to do what he wants them to do. But it's also about the messianic secret. We see that a lot. He does not want people telling people he's Messiah. Why? David, your your son learned to shoot pretty young, right? How how old was he when he when you started teaching him? Okay. Why wasn't he two? Yeah, he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. The same reason Jesus would not let these people know He's Messiah, they weren't ready. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to overthrow Rome. And so they weren't ready to know that. And it's not until chapter 8 that you see Peter making the confession, you are the Christ, then he starts, but even the disciples for the first eight chapters, they were wrestling to know, what, what, who is this guy? And so, um, but even then he commands them, don't tell anybody. In chapter 8, after he makes it, he says, don't tell anybody. He tells the demons, be silent. Don't tell people who I am. I mean, like, he, this is called the messianic secret. He just he didn't want to reveal it until it was time. And so Mark seems to divide his storytelling into three, I guess you would call it main acts. If it was a play, it would be three, a three-act play. The first part is in Galilee. The second part is him moving toward Jerusalem. And the third part is him in Jerusalem doing the crucifixion the suffering and crucifixion. And and so um, there's a midway point in chapter 8 where Peter makes this declaration, and that's kind of the dividing point. In fact, if you look at the first eight chapters, it really entails the preparation that Jesus is making and that is being made for him, even by John the Baptist in chapter 1. And then the presentation, how he goes and he moves around and he presents himself. He does miracles, the proof of his kingdom. But then in chapter 8, after Peter makes this declaration, the rest of it is about his pain, the rejection, the passion of the Christ, the suffering, and his kingship. That, that's really the second half of it. So, who is the guy who wrote this gospel? Who is Mark? What do we know about him? If I ask you, all right, seriously, 
If I ask you before I sent out my email the other day, and you don't read emails anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, would you have known where Mark was mentioned in the Bible? Yes. Okay? Very few people would know he's mentioned in 2 Timothy. He's mentioned in Philemon. He's mentioned in Colossians. The same guy who wrote this Gospel. And is that significant? You bet. It's huge. The first place he shows up is in Acts chapter 12. Turn there with me. I'm going to read. And I want to set the background. Just remember, we went through Acts. You should remember it from our teaching. But the first 12 chapters of Acts, who's the primary preacher? Peter. Peter's the leader, right? And what's happening? The Gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. So Peter's the primary preacher. But starting in chapter 13, a new guy is really the focal point of all the preaching the ministry that takes place. It doesn't mean Peter's not doing it anymore, but the main thrust is on this guy named Paul. And so we see the end of Peter's ministry in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 12. What happens? What happens at the end of chapter... Well, what happens in chapter 12? James is killed, remember? And Peter's thrown in jail. Who's in charge now? Herod's in charge and his desire is to wipe out the church. And so he thinks, I killed Herod. I mean, I killed James. Everybody liked that. So I'm going to throw Peter, the next guy, in jail. So he throws Peter in jail. His plans are to kill him. And let's read in Acts 12 real quick. I want to read what it says. Because we get introduced for the first time to this guy named Mark. Starting in verse... We'll we'll go down. We'll start in... uh, Verse 3. And when he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. He's talking about Herod. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Sixteen soldiers are guarding Peter. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And what's he want to do? He's going to kill him. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains and sentries. Before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said, Dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Why? Because he'd already had one vision and it seemed real to him, so he thought he was having a vision. But they passed the first and the second guard and they came to an iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street And the angel left him. So here Peter is in Jerusalem. He's out of prison. Herod, the king, wants to kill him. He's already killed James. Most people would beat feet and get out of town. But Peter says, no, I'm going to the church. I'm going to the church where my people are who I know have been praying for me and he goes to the church. 
It says, when Peter came to himself, he says, now I'm sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy. She didn't even open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing out there. And all these faith-filled people who were fasting and praying said, you're out of your mind. It can't be here. It's impossible. But we're praying for God to do it, but it's impossible that He did it. Do you ever do that? Do you ever pray for something? And God's doing it right in front of you. He may not be doing it the way you think He's going to do it. But she kept insisting. So, so here we are introduced to John Mark for the first time. John was a Jewish name. Mark was a Gentile name. And it's really just used as an identifier for Mary's house. Why? Because there were lots of Marys in Jerusalem. And, and, and so when he's writing... He's identifying, Luke is identifying, Peter went to the church. Where was the church meeting? At Mark's house. At Mark's house. At Mary's. And why was Mary mentioned? Why was her husband not mentioned? Because more than likely she was a widow. If Mark had a Gentile name, you can bet that her husband was Gentile. No Jew would name his child a Gentile name. Where was Barnabas from? Cyprus. Cyprus. Who was Mark's cousin? Barnabas. Barnabas was from the tribe of Levi. More than likely, Barnabas was related to his mother Mary. More than likely, in the diaspora, that's where they were. And now she's back. And she's got a house there that that's where the church met. And so here's this young guy named John Mark who was there. We don't know anything about him. But Peter went to that house because that's where the church met. He had been to that house many times. He knew where it was. That meant that Peter knew John Mark. And Mark knew Peter. So this is about 14 years after the death of Christ, around 44 A.D., So here we see John Mark, or Mark, having a connection to Peter, but it doesn't say anything about his character, doesn't say anything about his upbringing, doesn't say anything about anything with him. He's just simply used as an identifier. So if you go to the end of chapter 12, Barnabas and Silas, remember what happens in chapter 11? The church in in Acts 11, they send Barnabas and Silas, I mean Barnabas and... uh, Saul to, uh, from Antioch to what? Bring a gift down to Jerusalem. Why? Because there's a famine. Remember Agabus predicted it? He, the prophet, he said there's going to be a famine during the time of Claudius. It was. And so they bring this gift down to Jerusalem. And when they go back, it says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission to bring the gift taking along with them John, also called Mark. 
So here he is mentioned again in chapter 12. They return to Antioch. The only person that goes back with them from Jerusalem is a guy named John Mark. It's Mark. Now this is the first time we witness that Mark is helpful or useful in the Scriptures. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a Peter. He he wasn't a, a pastor. He wasn't an evangelist. He was just a helper. That's all he was. And yet they saw fit to take him back. And we know from Colossians 4.10, when Paul wrote, he said that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. He brings that out in that letter. So Barnabas probably trusted him. He was his cousin. He was there part of the, the church there in Jerusalem. And so he wanted to bring him along in ministry to have a helper. Now Barnabas was a Levite. You remember that. He was from the tribe of Levi. What did the Levites do? They served, right? They were helpers. They served. And so more than likely, if Barnabas was from the tribe of Levi, then through his mother, Mark was from the tribe of Levi. See, there's a lot of things that you can basically look at Scripture, and it may not be written out directly, but you can pretty much say that if they were related, there was some kind of Levitical tie there. And so he went. He said, let's take him along. He can help us. And so that's what they did. Now in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are what? They're sent on their first missionary journey and they, they take Mark as their quote helper and he goes. And remember what happened on the first journey? They get down there. Elemas, the magician, comes along and it's not good. He was opposing them. Remember Sergius Paulus? They're sitting there and Paul basically blinded this guy and, and displayed the power of God, but it was tough. It was a tough thing. And here's this young guy, Mark, with them, and he goes, man, this is either... There's two theories about what happened. One theory is that he didn't like the fact that they were ministering to Gentiles. The second theory is that he just got scared. Either, either way, it doesn't matter. He leaves, it says, and um, returned to Jerusalem. And that's sad because he became a deserter at that point. He disappeared. He disappeared from the New Testament for a few years. You don't hear anything about him. He didn't go back to Antioch. He went back to Jerusalem. And, and uh, when he went back, he, you don't see him on the scene again until Acts 15. And in Acts 15, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit all these churches that we planted and kind of check on the disciples we made and see how things are going. And when he says that, Barnabas says, well, hey, let's take Mark. But Paul said, I don't think so. And it says that Paul insisted. So if Paul insisted, guess what? Barnabas was insisting. And they start going back and forth. It's such a sharp argument that they break apart. Got so heated that the Bible calls it a sharp disagreement. So not only did Mark's desertion cause him to have a splintered relationship with Paul, it caused his cousin Barnabas to have a splintered relationship with Paul. How do you think Mark felt about things after that? Do you think he felt useful? you think you felt like he could serve the king? <clears throat> Probably not. And Paul's refusal to take Mark was warranted. He didn't trust him. 
He had showed a lack of courage and strength and commitment. He was a deserter. And Barnabas, by the way, takes Mark, and where do they go? To Cyprus. They go to Cyprus. But, you know what? Ten years later, you see him in a letter written from Paul to the church at Colossae. Paul's in Rome when he writes the letter. If you remember, when Paul was in Rome the first time he was in imprisonment, he writes three letters, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Remember? He wrote those when he was there the first time. He was in prison twice there. And in Colossians 4.10, he writes this. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, who was another believer in prison with him, Send you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. Why do you think he would have to say that in a letter? He's telling them, if he comes to you, welcome him. Do you think people heard about the the, the split between Paul and Barnabas? You bet. Do people hear today when people split? You bet. And so, here ten years later, Paul's in prison in Rome. And and guess who his companion is in Rome? It's Mark. He's there. The deserter. Something changed in Mark. Something changed in their relationship. And in his letter to Philemon in chapter uh, 1, or Philemon 23, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you as do Mark and Luke and some others. So, Mark is now traveling with Paul and Luke. Think about that. This guy who was a deserter is now brought into really some heavy hitters, right? He's in there and he's traveling with them. He's in Rome and Mark is there with him. Paul is. And so Paul says, listen, I'm going to send Mark on my behalf. When he gets there, you need to welcome him. Bring him in. He's coming for me. He's back in the good graces of Paul again. It's obvious from that text. And if, 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 how long do you think that lasted? Well, if you go to 2 Timothy, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> Paul wrote from his second imprisonment, he's getting ready to die, right? In 2 Timothy, it's his last, one of his last letters, and it's about 66, 67 AD. By the way, Peter's dead here. Peter's already been martyred. It's the end for him. And he, this is what he says, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. Verse 9. He's going to have his head chopped off, right? That's what's going to happen. We saw the movie that, that, that depicted that. He says to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Why? Because he wanted fellowship at the end of his life with those he had been discipling. Timothy, Come to me. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He had another deserter now. Demas has gone away after the world for whatever reason. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus is in Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Then he tells Timothy, hey, go get... And who does he say go get? Mark. Bring him to me. He's useful to me in ministry. Isn't that great? This guy who caused the schism between two heavyweights, Paul and Barnabas, the guy who deserted him, he says, bring him. So from the time of his first imprisonment, he had Mark at his side. 
And on this, and at his second imprisonment, he wanted him there with him when he's dying. That says a lot. So this is a story in his life of a restored man, a man who blew it. Hey, can we blow it in life? You bet. Can we be restored? You bet. That's the message. A guy who's not an apostle, not a prophet, not a preacher, not an evangelist, not a missionary that we know of, just a helper. And he served along the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. He was so loved by Paul, so trusted by Paul, that he sent him to the Colossian church for him in his stead. And here's when he's facing death. He tells Timothy, Timothy, bring Mark. Bring him. Bring him. Isn't that great? Isn't that encouraging that God would use somebody like that? You know, those are the only kind of people he uses is recovering sinners and restored sinners, right? You could just stop there and you'd go, wow, that's a great story. But you know what? It gets better. Because his relationship to Paul is huge. But his relationship to Peter is more significant than his relationship to Paul. He became Peter's confidant. He became his scribe. He became his translator. Why? Because Peter was from where? Bethsaida. Yeah, he was in Galilee. He didn't know how to speak Greek. Well, but who probably grew up in Cyprus? Probably John Mark. He knew how to speak Greek and he served as his translator. So if Paul was the greatest apostle in terms of all the stuff he wrote, Peter was probably one of Christ's most intimate friends on the face of the earth. He was certainly up there in the top three. So what, what an incredible opportunity to be with Paul and to be with Peter to serve these two guys and learn from them. Do you think he heard Peter preach? Yeah. And it wasn't just in the early years. It was those, remember those 10 years when he was away from Paul? When, when, when he deserted, went back to Jerusalem, guess what happened? Part of that time he was with Peter. When he left, he went back to Jerusalem, but he didn't stay there. In fact, if you look in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter's writing from Rome here in 1 Peter. He's writing to Rome, to the Roman believers, and he makes a reference in Romans 5.13, she, meaning the church, who is in Babylon. Babylon was a code word for Rome. He didn't want to say Rome because Rome was persecuting the Christians here. And, there, and so in a cryptic way, he puts in Babylon for Rome, but he's talking about being in Rome. She that is chosen together with you who is in Babylon sends you greetings. And the greetings extend from the church in Rome to other churches, and so does what? My son Mark. My son. Not his physical son, his spiritual son. Mark had more than likely come to Christ listening to Peter preach in Jerusalem as a young guy when, when, the, when it all was starting. Peter was probably his greatest spiritual influence, probably the initial influence and the greatest influence on his life. And listen, there's historic testimony that goes back to the first century that after Paul left his imprisonment in Rome, because after he'd been there with Mark, he, when he remember he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, that first imprisonment, he then left Rome, 
because he was out of prison. And so he was out of Rome for a period of time. And testimony of, in history says that that's when Peter came in during that time. And so during that time, Peter spent at least a year there, maybe a little longer. And guess who was with him? Mark. Mark was with him during that time. And when he was there, uh, he ended up dying as a martyr uh, because he was preaching the gospel there and, and Nero didn't like it. About 64 AD is when they think he died. And while Peter was there, he sends greetings though and he says, and so does my son Mark. Mark was with Peter there. Can you imagine being it? I mean, during this, right before he dies. Guys, when people share information right before they die, it's the most important information they share. But what was Peter doing in Rome? What was he doing? What? He was preaching. And who was with him? So who was hearing every gospel presentation, every witness of the, the works of Christ? It was Mark. He was there. That's Listen, Mark's gospel is the product of Peter's eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. That, that's the source of Mark in the human way is Peter, but it's the, the spirit that put him there together. You see, God was working out a plan from the very beginning to weave his life. Whose house did Peter go to? It was Mark's house. Think about that. So God weaves our lives together just like He weaved my friend in Louisiana's life with my life and now these things are happening just like He weaved people in my life to pour into me. And so Mark heard it many, many times, the Gospel and all these accounts from Peter and he, he, he wrote it. So this Gospel, Mark, is Peter's account. And he wrote it through Mark. Remember, who was not an apostle, not a prophet, not a pastor, not a teacher, just a helper. He's used by God to call to, to write what he calls in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, under the inspiration of the Spirit who controlled all the information that had come to him through Peter. He wrote this gospel. So look at this. Look at the Gospels. You got Matthew, a former tax collector. You got Luke, who's a Gentile. You got Mark, who's a deserter. You got John, who's one of the sons of thunder who didn't get it either. And God uses these people to write his story. Why do you think God chose these people? Because they were all flawed. They were sinful, unqualified. But you know what? They were forgiven. And they look to Him. And that's really, you know, when you think about the Gospel of Mark, it's inspired by the Spirit. It's protected by the Spirit. It's controlled to be the inerrant story of Jesus through Mark's pen, but Peter's eyewitness accounts. But it's only the beginning of the story. And that's how it starts. The beginning of the Gospel. That's really all Mark comments to in the book. I mean, there's no commentary other than that. The very beginning. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it ends in kind of a strange way. In fact, it's such a strange ending in His Gospel that 
they added information to it at the end. And <laughs> listen, it ends like this. They went out, they fled from the tomb in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 8. They went out, they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's how it ends. And so, years later, and in your, if you look in your Bible, if you look Mark 16, 9 to the end, it'll be in brackets because it, that doesn't appear in early manuscripts. Doesn't mean it's, it's not valid. It just means that that was not necessarily penned by Mark. So this is the beginning. But it's not end. The story has no end. If you want to see the end, you go to Acts, right? You see how it continues. That's the whole point. But it's an amazing story that God takes this guy who blew it so bad that he split up two of the greatest missionaries that worked together in the history of the world and, and God brought him back to Paul and he gave him Paul, he gave him Peter, Barnabas, and he was a helper to all of them to write one of the four Gospels that has influenced people all over the world throughout time. Now think about that. Don't ever underestimate what God can do with somebody who's willing to serve. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. If he can do it with Mark, he's able to do it with you. He's able to do it with me. You don't sit there and think, well, I'm not a preacher. I can't preach. We don't know of any sermons Mark preached. He was a scribe. He wrote this. And so I was with a guy out in uh, Missouri last week. I'm sitting there in a restaurant with my wife, and I meet this guy, and I just start talking to him. I ask him, are you a person of faith? And he says, man, I haven't been to church in 28 years. And he proceeds to sit there and just tell me. And he starts tearing up as he's talking to me. He said, I went last week. All the guy talked about was money. And I'm walking out. This is what he says. And I'm walking out. And I guess the pastor, the campus pastor, said, hey, he walked out with me and he saw me walking out and said, so I haven't met you, introduced himself, and said, so... Are you new? And I told him it was my first time being in church in 28 years. And he said, well, what would you think? He said, that message wasn't for me. I felt like all you cared about was my money. And the guy said that to the pastor, and this was the pastor's response. Um, well, yeah, that was a tough one. And he let him just go. No other conversation, nothing. This guy sat in a in a restaurant because he owned the restaurant, and he talked to me for thirty minutes. My family's sitting over there at my daughter's birthday little deal, and I'm sitting over there talking to this guy about his soul. And he gives me a card. I ask him, does he have a Bible? He says, no. I'm going to send him a Bible. But he said, can I call you and ask you some questions? I said, absolutely. God can use that guy too. You see, I told him, this restaurant isn't for your benefit. It's for God's glory. But you'll never know that if you don't know Him. 
And so no matter what you do, no matter where you are, you're not all called to be Billy Graham's or a pastor. Just be a helper. It's amazing. I think of this guy in Louisiana and what God's using him to do. Let God use you this year. As we go through this, keep that in mind. No matter how bad you've blown it, no matter what's going on, just repent and let things change just like they did with Mark. All God wants from us is a teachable heart that says, Lord, I'm not worthy. Use me. So Father, thank You for this time today. Thank You for the reminder of this great servant of Yours, Mark, who didn't start off so great, but Lord, You just showed Your redeeming love through his life and ministry. And I pray for each man here that when we leave today, if there's business we need to do with you about things in our life where we've deserted you or we've, we've failed you or we've sought ourselves more than you, Lord, we would acknowledge that. We would own that. And Lord, we would then say, use me. Show me how you want to use me. And we would serve you, Lord. Thank you for the reminder of Mark and his life. And Lord, as we get ready to go into your gospel that he wrote, I pray that you would just let it refresh our love for Jesus and our love for you, Father. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Doug. <laughs>